0: So today, <clears throat> we we'll come together to hear the Patimoka, meditate together, it's halfway through the Vasa. It's a good time to review your practice. say there's no point practicing without some idea of the goal, the vision, what you're aiming for, which is liberation from suffering, Nibbana, otherwise our practice might easily go astray, we lose direction. but also we can get caught up in the goals and the visions. If there's no practice, then they're just idealism. So we have to balance and use some wisdom as we practice. And in the beginning we get that from our teachers and the Kalyana Mita around us. We listen to the Dhamma. And then we internalize it, we reflect on it for ourselves. <coughs> Even going back to our ordination procedure when we become bhikkhus, you've got the both the way of practice and the goal pointed out to you. We ordain for the realization of Nibbana. And we're given guidelines on our basic requisites in the Vinaya, what we should do and what we shouldn't do even meditation objects, the five gamatana and we taught the value of the Eightfold Noble Path as our vehicle for training, for developing the way that would lead to the end of suffering <clears throat> We told the importance of Sila. Sila paripavita samati mahapalo hoti mahani sangso. Samati, when practiced with Sila, is of great benefit. Samati paripavita banya mahapalo hoti mahani Samadhi is the fertile ground that nourishes the arising of wisdom. Wisdom is of great benefit when developed with samadhi. The Buddhist path and teachings don't have a monopoly on sila or samadhi or panya. But the Buddha was pointing out that samadhi that is purified by sila is of great benefit because it becomes a factor of the path and wisdom that is supported by samadhi, states of calm, clarity of the mind that has set aside the hindrances, is of great benefit because it can actually uproot defilements. Not that there isn't sila or samāti or pāṇya elsewhere in the world, but when practiced together as the Eightfold Noble Path, all these factors come together to purify the human mind, uproot it, uproot the defilements from it, develop clear knowledge and vision. Obviously in the beginning when we practice we we have many doubts because we're coming from ignorance and not knowing there's a conditioning force in our lives. It's probably why we came to learn meditation and became interested in Buddhism because we had an inkling that there's We have suffering, but we don't know how to deal with it properly. So we come to practice to Listen to the Dhamma, learn the Dhamma, and then practice the Dhamma, internalize it. And we have to depend on our teachers in the beginning and our own efforts to absorb information. So we study the Vinaya, the Suttas, we read, we listen. But then we also have to train to develop the ability to pay attention, develop mindfulness, develop the calm that comes as we learn to pay attention, more aware, more focused. And then we have to train in wisdom as well. It's not something that necessarily automatically pops up in the mind. Sometimes it seems like that. But there has to be causes for insight, wisdom to arise. So we have to train in that. <clears throat> in the beginning, of, <clears throat> in the beginning a lot of our practice is just learning what leads to what. You know, we take on the Vinaya, the Sila, because... As monks you might say we're obliged to, we're told to, we're encouraged to. But Vinaya is something you practice, so you reflect on it as you're keeping it. In the beginning it may seem daunting, so many rules, so many practices. But if you see it as a vehicle for learning about yourself, about the human mind and the way to end suffering. It's a worthwhile pursuit, We put effort into learning, practicing and then reflecting on the results of the practice of the Vinaya. If we stayed as we were before as lay people, well we'd never know. And one way that the human mind grows in wisdom and understanding is by doing things that we haven't done before, taking on challenges, learning new things. And the Vinaya is such a thing, at first it can be daunting or we feel that might be a burden or just give us trouble. But hopefully over time you appreciate the value of it. It's far from being trouble, it keeps you out of trouble. you have to be willing to practice with it and learn from it first before you can appreciate it and of course maybe we don't remember every single rule and every refinement of every rule but your mind starts to pick up themes and the different aspects of the Vinaya what it's pointing to the training of the mind to restrain our speech, our actions, and then training the refinement of the mind to understand what is wholesome Dhamma and what is unwholesome. We see the unwholesome Dhammas, they only harm us, they leave negative mental impressions, they lead to suffering, suffering of others, sometimes suffering of ourselves, whereas wholesome Dhammas, the Vinaya is pointing to and encouraging as we keep it only lead to more peace, more understanding, better relations with others, better relations with ourselves. It's just something you learn, you pick up over time, so then you trust the Vinaya more. Of course it helps to associate with others who keep it so you get it's easier to practice you get good examples, reminders but then as you practice you also get your own confidence as you understand more clearly why, why we do things, what's the purpose of it and all the practice of the path, the aspects of the path similar it's natural to doubt in the beginning, but we hear the explanations and we practice and those doubts start to fade as we really know for ourselves what is conducive to peace and understanding, what's harmful, what leads to more suffering, whether it's on the level of action, speech or just mind, mental states. as Ajahn Chah used to say it's practice of course it's fuzzy in the beginning we're not sure what is what he used to compare it to the fisherman who has got a net in the pond in the field and he can't see what's under the water but he can feel that there's something there so he starts pulling it in As he pulls it in, he's got, gets his hands around something long, thick, long. What his mind wants is an eel. There's the desire for an eel, because they make a good meal. But there's also the doubt, maybe it's a snake, and he can't see yet. So he can just keep pulling in, pulling the net in, trying to grab the, the creature. So only when he pulls it up and sees the markings on its back, then he's sure it's a snake, immediately drops it. And the practice is like that. We all want peace, happiness, progress, success. We're feeling our way, fumbling our way, groping around. The unenlightened mind gropes around, fuzzy, fumbles. But as we practice more, we're more paying attention, more closing in, closing in, and we see more clearly whether it is harmful or supportive to the practice, whatever the thought, the attitude, what we've said, what we've done. If you know something is harmful, once you know, you don't doubt again, you just want to drop it. That way of thinking, that way of behavior, Once you know something, you don't doubt. Your mind is willing to let it go. What is hot, you don't want to get burnt, you'll drop quickly. The mental state that is causing you suffering, as your mindfulness and wisdom improves, you don't want to hold on to it. As Ajahn Chah used to say, water that can't flow anywhere, it's stuck in a pond or a a vessel, gradually goes rotten, you know our thoughts and our wrong views and wrong thinking, if you keep holding on, gradually it goes rotten in your mind, the only thing to do is let go. In the beginning we have to listen a lot, learn a lot because we're conditioned by ignorance we can't expect to know everything so very, very few practitioners are wise from the off, from day one we have to learn through the practice which means you have to be willing to step out and do the practice challenge yourself, put forth effort that's how we grow or mature I remember when I was a young monk, we went to see one teacher, Lumpur Pian. He was famous for looking very similar to Ajahn Chah, his facial features. Some lay people would see him actually think it was Ajahn Cha. It's just a trick of nature maybe. But he's also a very good practitioner. He lived up in Lampang, not far from where Lumpur Park lives now. He was considered Aryapugala. We went to see him. Everyone is determined to listen very carefully. A good teacher. I was practicing my Thai. And when you're practicing your Thai, you try very hard to remember every word translated. He is also reputed to have the ability to read minds. Remember when we bow to him, <clears throat> just before that, we'd been talking about Ajahn Chah, our teacher, and his inevitable death, passing away. So when we bowed to Lumbhupi and he said, "Oh yes, it's correct to think about death all the time," and nobody had talked to him about death, but perhaps he was just picking up on what others were thinking and he went on to say we have to think about death all the time because it makes us heedful, heedful of our actions, when you reflect on the impermanence of life, this is why the Buddha gave it as a last teaching, all formations are impermanent, practice with heedfulness and cultivate heedfulness. and gave one of those um, talks about the mind of a sotapanna. Because a lot of the young monks like to ask those questions. Perhaps again he almost predicted what people were thinking about or what they wanted to ask. So they didn't, in the end, didn't have to ask. He said the mind of a sotapanna always focused on nibbana and always aware of the impermanence of life, constantly reflecting on death as a meditation, to make themselves heedful. He spoke very easy Thai, so I remember the talk, it's quite a good talk to learn Thai from. Said the Saudabhana always as respect for the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. They have no more doubt about that. No more doubt about the Buddha's enlightenment. No more doubt about the Dhamma, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path as the way to the ending of suffering. And no more doubt about that. <coughs> no more doubt about the Sangha. And he said, particularly the Arya Sangha. Obviously, the samuti sangha, conventional sangha, many are not arya puggalas. We said the arya sangha. You no more doubt about them. No more doubt about sila. It's in the mind of a sotapanna, there's no more intention to break the five precepts. In the traditional way explanation and the whole bhikkhu vinaya really reduces down to the five precepts so if you're struggling with some of the refinements of the rules we'll just start there because they, f- they spring out of or develop out of the five precepts and the Sodapana won't break the five precepts even on pain of losing their life you know, the mind just won't go go there anymore it won't have the thought to kill to steal commit sexual misconduct deliberately lie or abuse or to drink alcohol take drugs It's just normal for the mind not to think of those things and not to even, when pressured or tempted, to think in that way. Then he went on and reiterated about the mind of the Sotapanna, focused on Nibbāna all the time, reflecting on death and the impermanence of life constantly. That everything they do is for Nibbāna, whether it's meditation or just a mundane task like emptying a spittoon, washing out a toilet. It's all done with the mind on Nibbana, on letting go, letting go of self, attachment. And it's done for the good of others. So that comes up naturally. If you're letting go of self, then you develop kindness and compassion towards others. Many of the things we do are using our skills and our time and our energy for the benefit of others. If your mind is focused on Nibbāna, there's no problem with that. It's not contradictory. I said this, is not doing things to impress others, please others, not doing it to get something from others, not even doing it to get some special state or experience. The activities they do, the teaching, the cleaning, whatever they might do, they're just doing it because it's useful things that need to be done. But the mind is always focused on Nibbana and on letting go, and seeing the impermanence of the kendas, the impermanence of life. It's constantly focused in that way. So they're not concerned about the future, they're not missing the past. The mind keeps returning to the present moment. And that way it's actually a much better way to be. So like if you think about Nibbāna as something far off, an exalted state, it can seem so far away, it can be quite... we look back at ourselves and feel we don't have what's needed to attain Nibbāna. can actually be, put us off the practice. If you just look at the, the present moment, One breath in, one breath out. It's much easier. And that's actually what you have to do. You don't have to look at it as some kind of special state, far away. You just look at what you need to do in the practice, which is pay attention to the present moment. One breath in, one breath out. Your posture, your mind, your candors in the present moment. So the teachings we receive from visiting monks, monks we visit, readings, listening, it's all valuable for reminding us of the path, giving us the information we need, the inspiration we need. Then we have to internalize it through our own efforts. We are the ones who have to put the effort into bringing up mindfulness. You have to train in this, train in mindfulness, train in wisdom. And the wisdom we gain is not enough what we gain just from the talks and the reading, it's not enough to do the job. We have to internalize it and train in reflecting and looking, maybe comparing what we hear but then looking for ourselves, at what's going on until we know for ourselves the nature of the candus and this world around us. Part of our practice is balancing the path factors as we train in samatha, mindfulness, developing the calm, tranquility You can see it's very necessary a lot of the time because we have so much random thinking, distracted thinking, different negative emotions popping up, our reactions to things. We need to calm down. But you also watch if you're practicing Samatha. If you don't train in wisdom, it just stops. You calm down, still the mind, which is a valuable skill a necessary skill but if you don't develop wisdom then it just stops there and the mind quite often just prefers to indulge in dullness quietness without developing any further wisdom so we have to make the mind contemplate sometimes it prefers just to be quiet, even if there is Samadhi present. We have to actually make the mind contemplate. We have to turn, particularly to the body, we have to make the body and the mind contemplate the body. Often the mind is very stubborn, especially if you have been doing Samatha practice. The development of wisdom uses up mental energy, involves more movement of the mind, watching, learning. So as we practice Samatha, sometimes it just doesn't want to do that. So you have to make it. But then of course, you're doing, developing wisdom, that stirs the mind up, It so easily goes into distraction, agitation, random thinking and often we're back with a lot of emotional turmoil and confusion again so getting the balance right between Samatha and Panya is a constant reflection in the practice bringing back bringing up mindfulness calming the mind reflecting on the Dhamma But obviously, the more you do it, the more balance, the more you understand this balance, you understand what you need to do. You understand how to develop different postures. It's your walking meditation. How to be mindful as you walk. How to contemplate as you walk. What to contemplate contemplate Sometimes they say, just contemplate whatever's arising, contemplate that. Whatever you're feeling. Whether you're feeling bored, interested, tired, energetic, good, bad. Just contemplate that, observe how your body feels, how your mind feels. As you bring mindfulness up, that detached, detached awareness knows the experience. For what it is, it's just an experience, a feeling, arising, passing away. Sometimes we escape from the feeling by doing a lot of Samatha, just focusing on our meditation object over and over again. to the point where you're just not noticing or not interested in particularly in painful feelings, feelings of tired, pain. Other times if that's not working or just out of interest you take it on as a challenge to actually put your mindfulness on the feeling, on the pain, and investigate it. And again, bring up this detached awareness, knowing the pain, but not reacting with aversion. You build up that ability, so either way, whether you're practicing samatha or developing wisdom, the pain is not a problem, it's just something you're knowing, being aware of. And if you keep practicing like this, then there's not much that you have to fear or worry about because everything becomes part of the practice. Whatever experience you're going through, whether it's you're feeling very inspired, happy to practice, or you're feeling very bored, you can make all of this a basis for mindful investigation whether you're healthy or whether you fall sick if you fall sick or you have some pain or injury we can learn from that just as anything else doesn't have anything any more value or less value than anything else a blissful peaceful state of mind you learn from you learn it's impermanent or a very dark, negative state of mind. You can also learn from, it's impermanent. And this is what matures the mind, as Ajahn Chah says, it's the, the development of this kind of knowledge, this is what matures the mind like a mango fruit from the green hard fruit, maturing ripening into the soft sweet delicious fruit as you keep contemplating you get to know things especially over and over again you might seem to it might seem very repetitive but because you're getting to know something your mind is actually changing for the better it's maturing Just the word mature in general society is not so attractive. Now it's used for old people, the mature citizens of the world. It means old people and often people don't like to think of themselves as old or don't like the thought of aging or they don't like other people who are old. In terms of Dhamma practice, mature is what happens through the practice your mind matures so you know things and when you know things you understand you don't suffer with them anymore you don't suffer with unpleasant experiences you don't suffer with the pleasant ones you don't grasp onto them so much and want them so much because you know they're impermanent even the unpleasant experiences you know are impermanent if you really know that then your mind can drop them quite quickly. In the end, even serious illness is impermanent. It might kill you, but you die from it. It's impermanent in that way. You escape from it through death. In the end, there's nothing, however unpleasant in this world, that's permanent. You use that knowledge to your advantage helps you to get through difficult times or difficult experiences and you don't get so caught up in the highs and the good experiences either. So the end result is equanimity, calm, clarity, equanimity, So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.